0: Fame is an opinion, but being prolific is a fact.
1: Matt McKee, I created Cherry Bomb in the Sweet Blast series of limited edition photos with the mission to start conversations in the room about the bigger topics of food, art, and sustainability. This podcast is the companion piece to that project where I get to share with you some of the discussions that Sweet Blast has inspired. Today I'm talking with painter, illustrator, and all-around great guy, Joel Van Patten. Joel, I've been following your work for a little while on Instagram. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Yeah, my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me here on the show today. My pleasure.
1: My pleasure. You described yourself to me as a contemporary realist oil painter and comic book creator. Those are seem like two different fields of art. How did you get started in the whole art thing?
0: Yeah, definitely two different fields for sure, right? I was an illustrator and used to draw throughout my entire youth. You know, my brother would write comics when I was about seven years old and I would draw them in the bedroom and, you know, try to do what I could and put them out and uh, have my mother sneak into her office and make photocopied copies (laughs) so I can sell them to kids at school, right? So I did that forever. And then in high school, it became cool to do uh, tattoo design. (laughs) So now you're doing, everybody's hitting you up to do tattoos and things. So just going on with the art career, tell people, yeah, I'm an artist. They go, what do you do? I said. Well, I draw stuff and I go, What do you draw? Well, I draw fantasy stuff and they're like, Oh, okay guy (laughs) (laughs) take it very seriously, right? So I was like, Well, let's let's see where that goes. The painting came about because my mother got sick with Alzheimer's and I just needed something to distract my mind and I always need a challenge. So I said, Well what the heck, I'll pick up painting. It seems like people take you more seriously in the fine art world when you're doing, I don't know, painting versus fantasy drawings <laughs> or some reason, And I fell in love with it because it was so forgiving of a medium versus pen and ink comics. You know, you put a line down, it's done. But paint, you could just take a rag, wipe it right mm. off. So I liked the technical challenges of it and also kind of the mechanical aspect of it with the mixing of the paints, the chemicals, everything, trying to get that done. So I did that for about 10 years. And now recently I got over myself mentally and said, well, why do I draw this line in the sand between comics and painting? I said, so why can't I do both or go back into that world? And it's more popular now in the comic book world than mm-hmm. ever. So it's been good timing for everything to reevaluate what I'm trying to do artistically as well.
1: Yeah, it seems like the last 10 years or so, the graphic novel has really kind of taken off as storytelling and art form at the same time and is gaining respect. It really kind of helps to push the craft forward. We'll get to your recent comic book journey in a moment. I want to go back a little bit. So you were drawing in high school and I assume after that, but it was mostly in the fantasy field. You also said to me you were an illustrator. Were you commercial or is it just you were doing this for your own gratification? Were you showing galleries?
0: In terms of the, you know, the illustration portion, it was primarily just working for buddies, you know, friends I did a very short stint at a tattoo parlor drawing their flash or custom work for people that would come in. They never taught me to sling ink, which uh, would have been cool to actually yeah. know how to do that. It could have been a side gig. Uh, I, I very briefly dipped my small toe into body piercing when I was there, but that was, I was horrible at it. So I got <laughs> out of that real quick. So, yeah, That's something you don't want to be horrible at. Right, right. Well, I had a couple of friends that were guinea pigs, so they were thankfully. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was primarily just, here's 20 bucks, draw me a tattoo or something. You know, that was kind of thing. So, But it was fun in high school, right? $20 yeah. when you're in high school is like 2000 when you're an adult. So it's big money, right?
1: Yeah, seriously.
0: That was about the success of it back then. All
1: right. At some point, you started doing the oil painting things. And I was looking at your work on your website. It is vibrant and dark and contrasty and, I mean, emotional. It's really quite fascinating. Obviously, you have a style. And I always hate to use that word, style, but... Style is something that other people attribute onto you, but how did you develop this particular look?
0: I really like the value range of composition. So when I look Mm -hmm. at it, I try to make this easily explainable. I would think, you know, I'm looking at extremes from really, really dark to really, really light. And if I can work broadly within that spectrum, I think it creates a more dynamic work. You know, let's say hypothetically the value of zero was pure black and value 100 is pure white. If you can work within that spectrum and go very, very dark and stuff, very, very bright and stuff, it creates a really broad spectrum. I see a lot of artists will work somewhere in the middle. They, they either go not dark enough or not light enough in their composition and also their painting in general. It kind of creates like almost a pastel type of work look to it. But if you can get that deeper, broodier range, I think goes through there, too. I think
1: broodier is a great descriptor for it. <laughs>
0: Right. <laughs> I'm looking for that all the time. You know, even just walking around and looking at nature or, or your compositions, photos and things, I'm looking at that dark to light value spectrum is really what I want to try to get. Things like my cityscapes and also the backgrounds, I'm using non-conventional application materials like squeegees and rollers Oh wow! and things like that just to apply the paint to give it that different type of an effect. Again, it goes back to me challenging myself, try not to use a brush on this composition at all or this painting at all just to see if I can pull it <laughs> off or... Go grab a stick out of the woods and see how you can paint with that, right? So My
1: gosh. Go. Yeah. I didn't scroll all the way down the page before and I'm looking at the cityscapes now and it's just foreboding in a lot of ways. I mean, do you feel that way about city life?
0: Um, I think it's kind of ominous, right? It's always interesting. I always had that feeling when I go to the city, it just seems like it's its own entity, right? And it's kind of just huge and encompassing and ever growing and consuming, not just the people that are in it, but the whole thing of itself is almost a living organism that just kind (laughs) of takes over. So it's like this big monolith down there, you know, just this huge thing. There's an energy in the air. Maybe it's all the electrical fields. I don't know. Looking at the cityscapes, that allows me to get out my energy and emotion and a lot of craziness more easily. But then you look at something tight and technical, like some of my still life work, that's more of my calm, serene type stuff. I had a show recently called Calm in the Chaos, and that's exactly what that was referencing, was the calm of the still life, but the chaoticness of the cityscape. It allows me to be wherever I need to be at that time, emotionally and artistically.
1: Fascinating. Now you've transitioned to doing a comic book as well.
0: Sure, a friend and I have created a comic book company called Livid Comics and the book that we're working on, basically it's a Christmas themed story where there's this young kid named Will Sheldon and he accidentally finds his device in a junk shop that allows him to teleport through time. The device was actually once used by Santa to suspend time to deliver gifts to all the children. And now he's kind of found himself in this world. And there's an evil elf that's trying to get a hold of the device for his own personal gain and power and who's kidnapped Santa and has him held ransom. And Will has emotional issues too. So he has to deal with a lot of anger and things. And uh, that's another substory in there. So it's about him overcoming those personal problems, to learn how to control this device so he can then go and save Santa, the world and everything else through time and dimension. And there's all kinds of characters and things he meets along the way. So we just started writing that out and got book one done is at the printer and run about halfway through book two now. So it's coming out.
1: What brought about the idea of, I guess, going back to your roots in this case and telling a long form story?
0: You know, the gallery world's a little slow right now because of this worldly event going on why don't I go back in and try this? And what had happened was, is ironically a friend that I work with my day job and I were just communicating and he was a writer. I don't have no interest in writing. So I said, Hey, do you want to do a book? And he said, yes. So the timing was right. You know, we're doing this all entirely remote, you know, via texting and a lot of late night phone calls and things. And the catalyst was really just, hey, the gallery world is slow. Why don't I go back to this other world in the comic book world? And it's been crazier than ever. And it's so busy. I mean, even look at some of the prices of some of the old issues are record shattering. You go to conventions. I mean, it's shoulder to shoulder people right now. It's never been busier. I mean, I've never seen anything like this right now. So the timing just happened to hit just right.
1: I'm very curious to see how the world over the next few years kind of evens things out as we adjust to new normals and are we seeing an expansion because of everyone kind of coming out from underneath covid and that's the way it's going to be with mass things going on or is it going to kind of settle down to some normalcy what do you think
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be some different areas of innovation. Hopefully other people can adapt like that. I mean, the traditional gallery world may be totally different going forward than what we've seen in the past. I definitely feel it's a paradigm, right? And there's going to be some things that come back to how they were and then some things will never be as they were. And then there's also some things that are in the middle. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking at comic book stories and stories that are successful right now. A lot of the human interest stuff is very, very popular, and I think that that's because people can relate now because they're going through similar situations where they're mm. you know, having uh, adversity and trials and tribulation right now. So maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but more popular than, say, the traditional superhero story.
1: You said something interesting a moment ago talking about the reason for the pivot to the comic or one of the reasons for the pivot to the comic was about the business side of art. I talked to a lot of younger artists through my experiences have not necessarily been as aware of their art as a product but it sounds like this is something that's very much on your mind when you're creating
0: yeah so the main idea is always facilitate the art that's the goal is hey can i do this can i be successful at it enough that i can do more art that's always <laughs> the end goal is hey you know if i can Make enough money. I could just do art all day, every day. And and I guess the bonus goal would be is, hey, if my wife can stop working too, then then I've really, really done something. So I guess that'd be nice if she could get off that too. But it depends on what you want to do, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of people that say they're, you know, artists, quote unquote, but I kind of consider them sometimes more hobbyist, right? It's just something that they happen to do every now and again. Uh, For me personally, art has always been like those folks that need to go jogging every day to feel normal. It's like I have to do something creative every single day or else I kind of lose my mind and my wife will attest for that too. (laughs) She's
1: very patient. I get that. I totally get that.
0: You have to look at it as a business if you want to be able to continue to do it. And it's the craziest business ever, right? I mean, you can attest for this, but I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. some days it's massively successful and then you'll go months where nothing sells and you question what the heck you're doing with your life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a a roller coaster ride, right? (laughs) So those months that are super slow, you may want to start compromising your art. You know, well, kitty cats sell well, so let me start doing kitty cats, you know? Or whatever, you know, you know so you start to think about things like that, or you start to devalue your product, because you're like, well, maybe it's my prices are too high, and you're gonna start doing that, too. So those are real things that-
1: Oh, I've been guilty of that. Oh,
0: yeah, sure. But, and then the moment you bring it down and you get rid of it, someone says, oh, is that still available? And they would've paid full price for it, so, right?
1: Yeah. 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 Oh, my gosh. So, how far down the rabbit hole do you go in terms of the business side of it in terms of you know spreadsheets and budgets and everything like that?
0: Yeah, that's more mechanically in my mind. I just have a mind for that to keep track of things. I've never balanced a checkbook. I'm one of those guys I just, <laughs> just, <laughs> figure out. I just just write the checks until they you know, until they come back and tell me it doesn't clear so you know so I never yep. did anything really like that. I don't have any inventory or anything like in my mind or anything. I just I mean, I'm looking at more, I guess, in terms of marketing and how do you get that stuff out to people. What do the people like? Do I've always been good at content creation, social media, and those type of areas. That's primarily where my strong suit is. Yeah. At crunch numbers for a living. If somebody wants to do that for me, that's great. Like I said, I don't <laughs> want to write the story. Either. I'd rather draw it. So let someone else handle all that stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, your Instagram feed is great. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I've been enjoying that a lot. Well, I get the feeling that the ideal venue actually for our conversation really should be sitting around on a porch somewhere with, you know, a a gold rush or a nice uh, scotch or something like that.
0: Come on up, buddy. Anytime. Come on up. I got six wonderful acres here in a gazebo. It's all screened in and ready to
1: go for you. Oh, my gosh. Well, actually, that's a good transition then. You also told me a little bit about your current living situation when we were speaking earlier. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Sure. So we're totally one of those people that took advantage of current events, you know, and did the whole let's get the heck out of the city thing. So, mm-hmm. totally guilty with that.
1: Getting away from the foreboding and the, the mystery and <laughs> the darkness.
0: Things are getting crazy in the world, right? I mean, they are, right? We had the election going on, we had the COVID thing going on. Everyone's at each other's throat. You're on social media, blah, blah, blah. You're seeing it in the city more and more. I have three kids to think about, too. So, let's get the heck out of the city. We were really into looking at things like well how do we handle a situation if things got super bad with all the divisionism in the country what do we end up doing like can we be self-sufficient can we go and and take care of ourselves well not really on a quarter acre it'd be really hard for a family of five so let's go get some land so we ended up moving out into western new hampshire um, in a small, no nothing town, middle of nowhere, that has nothing to do with anything, <laughs> really. Um, but you're able to get, you know, a lot more land for a lot less money. And the idea was we wanted to be able to start to do our own sustainability, grow our own foods, vegetables. You know, maybe have small livestock. I wouldn't have any cows or anything that large. I need massive land for that, which I'm, I'm not interested in. That we switched into the homeschool thing for the kids as well. You know, and part of that learning to be self-sufficient is the homeschool, right? And people go, how do you have time to do that? Well, we have nine tomato plants who want three even rows. How many tomatoes are in each row, right? And then that's a math lesson. So you encompass what you're doing to teach the kids as well. Okay. So we're out here trying to make a go of that. This is an old former sheep farm built in 1850, no more sheep. Oh, wow. Classic old house, you know, you drop a pen and it rolls to the corner and disappears because nothing's (laughs) level in here. The wind blows and it comes right through the house kind of thing. But it's, it's fun. It's got a lot of character and things.
1: Oh, gosh.
0: You know, one of the biggest appeals, I think, for us so far is the unbridled sense of community out here has been fantastic. You know, I can walk a tenth of a mile up the road and go buy eggs from our, our farmer friends up there every day when I want them. I can't get much more local than a tenth of a mile up the road the same day. I mean, and the yeah. chicken just laid them that night. So, I mean, it's that fresh. I mean, it's unbelievable. You're talking about going completely off the grid. I mean, I'll still do electricity. I still do that kind of stuff. I'm a bit lazy with that stuff, but if I can make it, that's really neat. Trying to do more woodworking and bushcraft things and felling my own trees and milling my own boards and making furniture and things like that you know the pain of being in the country is the nearest hardware store is 35 miles away oh my gosh right if you need a nail or screw or something i mean you kind of got to go find one or figure something out or plan ahead so you do pivot and adjust to that as well but at the end of the day i mean i still have electricity internet maybe solar at some point would be nice she'd like it if there was no wi-fi in the house she gets really uh wiggy about signals and emf fields and things like that so she's makes me turn off the wi-fi sometime on the weekends because we don't even like that type of energy disrupting the air and how old are your kids uh they're four six and eight they got two girls and a boy the boy's youngest he's four
1: okay because my kids are significantly older and the idea of turning off the wi-fi for the last 10 years would have been grounds for a mutiny (laughs) i bet (laughs) They were great in that they were more interested in going down the YouTube rabbit holes about things like IT and computer repair and working on cars and things like that. To a certain extent, even though they were in public schools, they were also homeschooling themselves in the things that they were really interested in. But getting cut off from that, I'm not sure how well that would have worked for us anyway at that point
0: my eight-year-old she loves computers and technology and since she was about four she says dad i want to be a coder dad i want to be a-. and she's Fantastic. never lost that so but i mean she just has an affinity for computers and things and like i said uh when we were trying to set up the show she can run circles around me on this tech stuff so kind of scary you got to watch it you know she's over the look your shoulder remembering passwords and things
1: so right so. so for the next 10 years or so you've got a built-in it department for yourself so. right
0: exactly nice. yeah that's
1: right you've transitioned to this farm life, what kind of personal mental fortitude do you think should have in order to kind of achieve this sustainable lifestyle?
0: So you're not going to be able to have all of the conveniences of the world right there at your back and call. Yeah. But you got to be prepared to handle things like that. For example, we don't have a clinic nearby or hospital, right? So that's 30 40 minutes from us. If something happens to you, you have to be prepared, you know, if something's urgent. I mean, obviously there's ambulances and things like that, but there's a ambulance for the town, right? So if they're on some other call, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe the next town might come over. So, you have to be prepared in terms of like your medical stuff. And I also think what's interesting about thinking about that is your decisions out here are really really critical right so you have to be very careful about what you're doing and think things through whereas i think sometimes when we have things so easy especially like in a more of an urban city life you don't have to worry about things as much because there's a lot of availability for other solutions and different alternatives for you so you know you have to think okay i'm cutting this tree how am i going to drop this tree where's it going to fall am i going to get hurt where's my clearing what gear am i having on to protect myself with a saw and things like that. So you give up a lot of the comforts. There's no delivery food, right? You can't go and get a pizza. You have to go drive and get the pizza. That's 25 <laughs> minutes to go get a pizza and then drive 25 <laughs> minutes back. So you're eating it in the car, you know, on the way back so it doesn't get cold. Oh my gosh. Getting out in winter, sometimes you just can't.
1: Snow getting off the mountain. Wow. So you have to be a lot more mindful about day-to-day and week-to-week planning ahead, all of that stuff.
0: Definitely. So the first couple months we're here, we're going to the grocery store like every three days. So we're like, well, this is crazy because it's 35 miles away or whatever. So, yeah. you know, now you buy, you know, two, three weeks in advance versus that week. We built up a lot of our local contacts with local farmer cooperatives, buying eggs up the road, meat from a guy that's 15 minutes away, things like that. We get everything pretty much locally, except for produce. We do the Misfit Market fruits and vegetables every week, which has been fantastic. That's a good service.
1: Mm-hmm that's been coming up in my conversations fairly regularly of late i think i need to get them on the show
0: i mean we're almost grocery store free we really could be but we're missing dairy because it takes so much land but you need like a hundred plus dairy.
1: your previous lifestyle was in the city and then you moved out into the hinterlands how would you compare the two lifestyles
0: when we look at way society is going there's always something where there's more anxiety depression stress everything else is out there Maybe this new societal construct that we're doing, when we go back into like the Industrial Revolution, we're what 100, 150 years into this style of living, go sit in a box, do your time and come out. Maybe that doesn't work for us as a human animal, where ultimately there's something in us that happens mentally, philosophically, if you can go out and grow a crop, if you can catch a fish if you can drop an animal and, and you know eat that animal, there's something that happens in us. It's almost on a spiritual level, like a fulfillment. And I don't think that we get that with the modern constructs of society that we have. There's something that's called the Dunbar's number where your brain can only remember about 150 people and their names. And there's a theory when we were in tribal times where we had to just know immediately who was in our tribe. It seemed, you know, in the past, and again, maybe it's just the transfer of information, that back in the day, we just didn't see the problems with crime, anxiety, depression, stress, all the things that we're seeing now with this modern structure, because maybe those psychological needs are being met when we're able to be self-sufficient, rely on ourselves versus the conveniences of a more urban lifestyle. Hmm,
1: that's an interesting point of view. I think in a lot of ways, you're right. I think I've always thought that people need to have a sense of purpose and they want a sense of purpose, whether it's going to work every day or working on their paintings or whatever it is that by accomplishing something, they get that endorphin rush, they get that joy for the moment, and then the next day they need to do something else that's going to achieve that. Being in a small community where you can kind of support each other with that is great. Do you think there's a way that we can build that out further I get the tribal side of things, but how can we agree that the tribe is actually much bigger than that small community? Because that small community is reliant upon the next community over, which is reliant on the next community over, which is reliant on the capital community to be doing their thing, and is relying on the overseas community to be doing their thing. I keep coming back to it's all interconnected. Even though we have our small community, The size of our terrarium is actually the globe.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be really difficult to try to encompass all needs for all people. And I always say even the size of of a country like the United States, what might be fundamentally great for Massachusetts might be horrific for Oregon. Yes. It's really hard to try to get something that large. and. I don't think necessarily we were even meant to be that large a scale. I mean, sure, the Polynesians could have interacted with the Amazonians. I mean, that's all plausible things that could have happened. And But it wasn't a day-to-day interaction, right? Yeah. I don't know how you would possibly unwind everything that we've done in society now. I mean, capitalism rules the mm. day, right? Maybe sometime if we're a species in evolution, we can evolve out of our alpha chimp thing and not need to be the biggest and the best and thump our chest and show off all of our stuff and... <laughs> (laughs) maybe some year i'll be in the ground at that point when that evolution of people come but
1: (laughs) yeah yeah hopefully we can bring it together at some point because the world's not getting any smaller all right let's go a little bit lighter for a moment hard day you've done some stuff for your day job you've then gone out and built the split rail fence come back at the end of the day what is your comfort food
0: i would have to say probably chicken parmesan is my signature dish
1: chicken parm okay
0: I can make it really well. My daughter will actually eat it. So that's a high <laughs> praise. <laughs> Phenomenal compliment. But if we go out to get pizza or, or somewhere, it's always chicken farm, chicken farm, chicken farm. So
1: I don't really know how old you are. You look like you're about my age. But I'm always wondering when I'm talking with people, if you could go back and talk to yourself at some point in your youth and give yourself one secret, one thing that you would tweak, what would you say to yourself?
0: You know, as I've gotten older, one thing that I've learned, and it could sound a little hokey to some people, but I've learned to put my trust in God. So there's some things, like when you're a young guy, you think the world's, you know, oh, I can't handle this, everything's gonna be crazy. But there's just simply some things in the world that you can't control mm-hmm. no matter what, right? And so you go, what the heck, it's in God's hands now, right? And the more I've done that and the more I've acknowledged that and given thanks, and I'm more of a spiritual person and a religious person, but more I just say, hey, th- you know, thanks for that, just recognize that the better things have been because that stupid demon will show up in the middle of the night at 3am when you're trying to sleep and it'll be like well what about this (laughs) what about that have you thought about this in that stupid voice and you just say hey you know what it's in god's hands and then i go back to sleep i've had a pretty rough 10 years you know my mother passed and dad and things and Mm. you know caused some problems with that but having gone through that at the time you're thinking about all that stuff and you're worried about all that stuff and it's like Okay, well, if you trust the plan, whatever you want to call it—destiny, universe plan, God's plan—if you trust in that stuff, ultimately, I mean, here we are, ten years out, and everything's fantastic. But I don't think it could have gotten to this point if I hadn't gone through all of that other stuff. True. So, telling the younger version of me, it's like, "Hey, dude, just chill out. It's gonna be okay."
1: (laughs) (laughs) We wouldn't be the people we are now if it wasn't for the things that we had gone through before.
0: Well, that's it. You know, I always say that the strongest foundations are built upon the stones of adversity. You never hear of a fantastic anybody, artist, author, musician, who just had it easy from the jump, right? I mean, it's always, they lived in their car and (laughs) ate out of a dumpster and were broke. And then next thing you know, they're flying around on private jets, touring the world and they're rock stardom, right? (laughs) Yeah. What
1: do you want your legacy to be?
0: Fame is an opinion, but being prolific is a fact. Interesting. You know, you could say, oh, is this guy famous? Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, there's a lot of great musicians, artists, authors, things that are awesome, but they've never sold more than 200 of whatever, right, a book or a record or anything. I mean, I knew that from a lot of indie bands in my days and mm-hmm. artists and things that I follow. Uh, but if you're prolific, right, and you're putting out massive volumes of work or just a tremendous amount of just effort in things, no one can ever deny the fact that you're prolific. Be like, well, geez, he did three thousand paintings and wrote fifty-five books. I mean, <laughs> that's something that—that's a fact. You absolutely did do that, right? So, yes. I guess ultimately, at the end of the day, you can't always rely on fame coming from your talent, but you can always rely on being prolific because no one would ever denied the fact you're able to put out that body of work.
1: Thanks for checking in with Cherry Bomb, the podcast, the companion piece to Sweet Blast, which can be found at theartofmattmckee.com. Today's guest, Joel Van Patten, can be found at vanpattenstudios.com. If you like the podcast, hit the like button and please leave us a short review in your podcast listening app. Be a hero to your friends and family by sharing it on Facebook or on Twitter. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, feel free to drop me a line at matt at mckeephotography.com. Cherry Bomb, the podcast, is produced by me with consulting help from Suzanne Schultz and Canvas Fine Arts. It was edited by Bill and at Orb Audio. Thanks for listening and let's start the conversation.